Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 22, Episode 25. Coming up on this show, we've got the alien death mask caper, UFO abduction, the proof is in the nipple, and Greg and Dana Newkirk join us to discuss the new season of Hellier. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. As lighthearted as that story may seem, the proof actually is in the nipple when it comes to this particular <laughs> alien abduction story. Nice one for the last episode of the year. <laughs> well, I was reluctant to include nipples for the last episode, but I couldn't avoid it. It was completely unavoidable. I'm sure Greg and Dana really appreciate that headline. <laughs> I'm sure they would. Before their names. I'm sure they absolutely would. And Greg and Dana are our features, of course, on this show. Many of you have been screaming for us to get them on the show to talk about the new season of Hellier. And we have watched it in a, a compressed, compressed form, yes. which mm. we'll explain in a moment. Uh, and it is, it is a, there's a lot going on in season two, and we really enjoyed it. We're going to go straight into this because it's quite a big chat with uh, two of our favourite guests. This is Greg and Dana Newkirk. You can catch Hellier at hellier.tv, but it's also streaming now on Amazon Prime as well. We hope you enjoy the interview. Well, welcoming back to the show, our two friends, Greg and Dana Newkirk on Hellier, the brand new season two. Congratulations, guys, on this this new series and welcome back to the show. Man, thank you. Thank and thank you. you for having us. It's always great to be here. We love talking to you guys. And it's nearly been a year now since season one dropped. It was uh, January, in the middle of January, you put it out for free on YouTube, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been almost a year. It's crazy. We put two seasons of a show out in a year. It's nuts. <laughs> Yeah, and the the response to season one was incredible. And I think it's just blown up to a whole new level with season two. We are just seeing so much love for you guys, so much love for this season. And uh, it's just really incredible to see. We're both just ecstatic for you. Blown away. Dude, it, it means a lot. And and like I said you know, before we went on the air, you guys are a really big part of people finding it. Absolutely. So we really appreciate mm-hmm. you guys uh, giving it a signal boost because we we hear all the time, oh, we know you guys from Mysterious Universe. We heard that Mysterious <laughs> Universe episode. That's why we watch Hellier. That's great. great. Well, I, I've been saying to you guys off air before we started just how unprepared I am for this interview. And I want to explain to you why. So yesterday, because we've been so busy, yesterday was my window. It was my window to sit down. Okay, I'm going to binge this thing. I'm going to watch all the, what's it, 10 it's episodes, 10 episodes right? yeah. I'm going to yeah. sit down and watch 10 episodes of, of Hellier. And I was all set. I had my iPad out. I had like a little cocoon of cookies and things to eat. <laughs> and perfect. My, my wife was making me sandwiches because she knew this was a task. Like I had to watch the whole thing in this one window of a day. And as soon as I sit down, I get through episode one. I'm like, great, I'm in. And then the sky outside changes. It goes to this deep orange and it's the middle of the day. It's like midday that I'm watching it and the sky goes deep orange. And Teresa, my wife says to me, uh, it's pretty smoky outside. And within two hours, I had completely forgotten about Hellier. I had fireman's hoses on my property, hosing down my my house. My street gets evacuated. I'm yelling at Aaron that he is now my evacuation center (laughs) for the night. I'm putting my kid in the car. I'm loading the car up with valuables. I'm trying to find my passport, my birth certificate. I'm trying to run this generator to fire sprinklers (laughs) over my house. There's a fire bearing down on my street. Like this huge bushfire just overtook our neighborhood uh, all of yesterday afternoon. So, oh my 
thank God everything's okay. Like we got out, we got out on time. Uh, the firefighters did an amazing job. They they saved our home. They saved our street. Oh, thank God. And it gets to the end of the night. I'm like, I've had like three hours of sleep the night before. I'm so exhausted. I've been breathing, smoking all day. And I, it's like midnight. And I'm like, I've got to watch Elia. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, no. Well, I'm, I'm really disappointed at your unprofessionalism. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to watch season two of Elia. So I start watching from midnight. And eventually I fall asleep, maybe uh, episode three, I, I fell asleep. I got up really early this morning and this is how I did it, guys. And I, I hope you're not offended by this, but this is how I watched it all. I put you guys on double speed. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. And it worked perfectly. I got the whole story. I got all the episodes and, and I got them in about 10 minutes before we just yeah. sat down to oh, record this. No. Oh, my God. So I'm glad I got it all in. But all I have in front of me in terms of questions for you guys is just <laughs> like a lot of exclamation points and words. <laughs> so <laughs> if my questioning is a little bit off on this episode... Um, that's why, because I we nearly died in a, a fire yesterday and recovered, and I watched you in like chipmunk voices. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe you watched yes. it. You're a maniac. Unbelievable. Well, I'm glad you're okay, and I'm glad that you're you're home and your family and everyone's okay. Well, thanks, guys. That's much more important. Thank you so much, and it's it was really a fantastic follow up to the first season. I mean, what I took away from the first season. And when we had you guys on the first time, I remember we'd watch only two episodes. Right, yeah. And we hadn't seen the rest of the season. And I was so pumped on that show about the rest of the season. And my honest takeaway was that my hype wasn't matched by the rest of the episodes. Like I felt the rest of the episodes after that second episode were a very slow burn. For and sure. I really enjoyed the series, but I could tell you guys were setting up for something. Like there was something... Yeah brewing well that's the thing is that's interesting most people won't realize until they see the second season is we started shooting the second season long before the first season was even out yes mm -hmm. yeah and and people we we kept trying to tell people like listen this is just a prologue yeah so, you know, it's only five episodes this is the start of something and i think a lot of people missed that there were some people who were upset that there weren't goblins, but you know, yeah. <laughs> you might have set your expectations a little high. <laughs> My experience for season two, though, was the opposite of that. So for me, watching season two was a slow burn in and getting towards the final episodes as I was watching them, you know, just moments ago, I was right in there. Like you guys had me just on the edge of my seat watching all these different uh kind of these cross lines these, are... yeah these forks in the road yeah. of where you guys end up it is so bizarre and we you know we were saying to you before we had you on the line that some of our research on the show recently in a bizarre way has dovetailed with some of those final episodes in your in your series so i want to get to some of that in a moment because we've just been stumbling across this research which is coming up in in season two but for the audience who you know, it's been a while since we've had season one. It's nearly a year now. And uh, there's obviously uh, some people might not have seen it. Let's uh, go back to season one and, and Greg and Dana, if you can give us some of the highlights, give us a previously on Hellia, like a nice quick uh, wrap up <laughs> so we can start talking about season two. Well, season one is, is a five episode uh, prologue to season two. And really what it covers is uh, back in 2012, I got a series of emails from this guy who said his name was David M. Christie. And he said he was a doctor that lived in this rural Kentucky town of Hellier. And 
he claimed that there were little creatures coming out of a mine shaft on the edge of his property. They were knocking on his kids' windows at night. They stole his dog. Like, you know, scary stuff. And he wanted help. And he was told to contact me by a, a quote-unquote mutual friend by the name of Terry R. Wrist. And uh, he said, I, I was well-equipped to handle these problems, which struck me as really strange because <laughs> – he emailed my very old ghost hunting team's website. That's right. And like the front of it, you know, it was Ghost Hunters Incorporated. And it was a bunch of teenage kids in like bowling shirts holding like medieval axes and BB guns and things like that. Very <laughs> professional. Very professional stuff. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it none of that ever really made any sense to me. And Dane and I did a little bit of digging and said, you know, well, it's probably somebody pulling our leg. So the guy, uh, I, I emailed him back. Like I, I, I'm, we get weird emails quite often. You guys know what that's like. And I just said, hey, uh, you got to give me some proof if this is actually happening because I'm not just going to roll down to Kentucky. And a couple days later, he sent photographs of these three-toed footprints and what he said were photos of the creatures themselves. And uh, they were so striking. Uh, we showed them to our cryptozoologist friends because they're the only people we knew that knew much about footprints. And they said, well, these look like they have dermal ridges. You should probably take this a little more seriously. And so we said, okay, we're in, let's go. And this guy just up and disappeared. And we didn't really think much of it until we moved to Cincinnati a few years later and then uh, decided to test our car one day. We just got a new car and said, well, you know, this Hellier town's only a couple hours away. Let's drive through and see if we can uh, tell if this, this actually happened. And uh, it looked ripe. Like it looked like it was the place. And then uh, we just got super busy. We were working for a startup and we didn't have any time to really uh, continue with this case. And so we just let it sit. And then a year turns into another year. And then eventually our friend Carl Pfeiffer, uh, he, heard, uh, he heard me talk about it on a podcast and had this string of crazy synchronicities that just shouldn't have happened. Um, he was seeing certain words and, and he was seeing articles about the, the goblin encounter in Kentucky come at him at such a, a, a pace that he said, there's, there's a reason I'm seeing this. We need to go do this. We need to go follow this up. And uh, season one is just us going to the town of Hellier to try and find this guy, David Christie, and see what happened with the story. And then finding out David Christie never existed anywhere in that broader Pike County area. And we were on to something a little bit stranger and older and it certainly seemed to feel like there was some force that was pushing us in a, in a direction. I remember the the first roadblock you had in that first season was you couldn't locate his house. You couldn't, and you couldn't confirm that a David M. Christie had even lived in Hellia. Yeah, it was one of the most frustrating things. I mean, we when we first uh, took that initial drive to Hellier, uh, we thought we had found what looked a lot like what could have been David's house. And we were really excited about it. So when we went back, uh, you know, years later with Carl and the rest of the group, we drove that mount, like all over that mountain mm -hmm. looking for this house and we could not find it. And like Greg and I are, at the time are thinking, these people are going to think we're insane. Like we can't, it should be very simple to find a house in this place. Like it's a really small little hollow. And like Hellier's only maybe a mile radius. Yeah. 
And it was the most frustrating experience for us. And there was a lot of that, that, you know, we, we were we were talking to people who uh, the first time around would, you know, tell us that a UFO the size of a football field hovered above Hellier. And then when we come back, we, we couldn't find the right people or they they wouldn't want to talk to us. It was this very frustrating experience. Or being people there. that we had talked to uh, like a day before. Yeah wouldn't remember us the next day. Yeah. Really weird stuff like that, that we really kind of borked all of our plans for what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. But I think there was a reason for that. And we start to get a little closer to that in season two. And one of the uh, kind of culminating scenes and one of the key aspects of season one was the use of, and the names totally escaped me in the kind of short amount of time I had to <laughs> look it up before we spoke to you guys. The, the Estes method, probably. That's exactly right. The yeah. Estes method, uh, you know, this was really fascinating how this worked. So essentially to, to rehash that, that is um, a device that is skipping through the, is it the FM band or the AM band? Yeah. And it's picking mm-hmm. out little pockets of bits from radio. And the idea is that the receiver, the person has headphones on, so all they can hear are, th- are those little snippets and they're kind of saying them as they hear them. And you guys are asking that person questions that or that they can't hear. Well, it's it's, a, it's an interesting thing because I it's based on a thing called an SB7 ghost box, which you see on a lot of the paranormal shows, like ghost hunting shows. And the, I don't know, the ITC stuff I'm really iffy on and I really hate ghost boxes. They have a really like aggressive sound, which I think is bad for an environment when you're trying to, you know, connect with something. And so what what Carl and Connor developed was this way of using the SB7 where you are double blind to it. So the, the people in the room don't hear the radio going so that there's no real group think there. No one can say, I think I heard this and someone else can say, oh, yeah, it did. You're relying on this person almost as a, a technologically assisted medium. That's They're right. basically channeling, which I think is it's it's blown me away so many times the way that people are. You can have a full-on conversation with somebody who has no idea what you're saying. It's bizarre. Well, that reappears in season two, and you also have one of Frank's boxes being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Persinger's God Helmet. Now, before we go into that, how on earth did you get a replica of Persinger's God Helmet? We talked to the parapsychologist who worked with him. <laughs> like that's, well, that's that easy. Honestly... It's funny. We, we we run into this a lot, particularly in season two, where we all are laughing about how people don't know how we're doing what we're doing or how we're getting the access we're getting to these people. And we're just asking. Yeah. <laughs> Man, we should try that sometime. There's got to be more to it. There's got to be money, money under the table or something. Well, I mean, here's the thing. There's a guy by the name of Todd Murphy who was one of Persinger's uh, colleagues, and he developed this this home version. It's the only non-laboratory version of Persinger's God Helmet, and it uses the same exact patented chirp signals, which is very important for it to work. And you can buy this from him. And we so we bought one from him. We just talked to him and said, hey, we, we want to use this for some experiments. And so we bought one. And, and and they're I mean they're a little on the pricey side, but you're mostly paying for those chirp signals that were developed in Persinger's laboratory at uh, Laurentian University. And it is patented, so it's not like someone can just reproduce it, sell it on eBay. No, yeah, there's a lot of folks out there who say they're using God helmets, but they're really using electromagnets strapped into like Batman masks, and <laughs> that's going to give someone a brain tumor because they're not like the the God helmet is not electromagnets. They're literally just low magnets that uh, circum, you know, they just go around the brain in, in complex patterns. 
patented patterns. So yeah, it's the only place you can get one of those. Well, I, I want to question you about your experience with it in a moment, Dana. But mm-hmm. before we go into that, let's kind of backpedal a bit and maybe we can talk about the, the first couple of episodes uh, really set a scene for season two and where you guys end up going. One of the you know memories from my binge session was <laughs> mostly of Tyler, Tyler Strand, and he's kind of in, infectious curiosity. Like the guy, it's almost like the part of, uh, you know, the part of someone's brain that tells them to stop. H- hang on a second. This might be a bad idea. Oh, it's disabled. A lot of the time he doesn't have that. <laughs> yeah, it's gone. <laughs> and he's he, just... he is disabled. That's <laughs> I would say he is disabled. The part of his brain was disabled, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> he's just going out. Like there was a scene later on where you guys are in a cave and... Uh, th- there's a possibility of hearing horrible things or horrible things going on in this cave. And he just has this look on his face like a little kid in a toy store. Just a deranged yeah. smile creeps yeah. across his face while I'm shitting my pants. Yeah. Like says, that sounds I like- think he, he literally would love nothing more than to see the most terrifying things that you could possibly imagine. Yeah. He's it, It's what drives him. He's He will, I think Greg describes it in the second season as if he's he's, the most enthusiastic uh, dog in a, a studded <laughs> an vest. vest. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah he's he's insane and he's the most curious person I've ever met and possibly the most dangerous person. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really infectious. I'm glad he was a bigger part of this season. And in some of these early episodes, he's see I I want to understand why he's going where he's going. So maybe you can explain where he goes off to in these first couple of episodes and and why he's going out there. So uh, there's a few threads that were left hanging in the first season. uh, And one of them was one of the emails that I got from this guy claims he's Terry R. Wrist had a very... uh, very cryptic email that said, you know, why'd you stop when you were so close? And then a week later, he emails me a set of numbers. And these numbers were, at the time, we thought coordinate points to Brown Mountain, which was a place that we had just been not too long before we got this email, uh, trying to to do an alien abduction experiment, trying to get abducted by aliens. And so we thought, okay, we need to go back here. There's something that we missed. And we weren't able to get there uh, quick enough because we knew the second season was coming out and we didn't want, we wanted to see what was there before the second season came out, before we boosted the attention or before the first season came out. I'm sorry. And Tyler said, I'll go, I'll go check these coordinate points. And so we gave him the coordinates and he went off by himself, uh, took like an all night drive down to North Carolina and went to go see what was at this spot. So a lot of what Tyler does for us in the series is he's sort of a recon man. Um, The places that we can't get to, he goes and he just goes to check and see like, is there something weird about this place? Is this a place that's, that's interesting. And he typically goes by himself, which is probably not the greatest idea, but as you see, there's hardly any stopping Tyler. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he's out there and sometimes he, it seems like he doesn't always think through his plans as well. <laughs> Cause I think we should have to drop some spoilers uh, in throughout this show. So if anyone hasn't sure. seen the, the full series yet uh, and you don't want any spoilers at all, we'll try not to spoil the whole thing. Uh, you know, stop listening now and go on watch season two. It's all available on YouTube and uh, the website is hellia.tv. But you know, I want to talk about what he discovered when he went into the woods because immediately he's saying, well, there's, there's really nothing here. 
but then, you know, he got some strange activity, didn't he? He, he saw something that kind of changed his mind a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so he's he treks out into the middle of nowhere with, you know, just a compass and uh, is searching for this coordinate point. And he's as he's walking towards it, he notices he notices two different things. The first thing that he notices is an unmarked black helicopter that randomly flies directly <laughs> over top of where he is. And, you, and it's in the moment, I think it's creepy. But you also have to remember that he's literally in the middle of nowhere. There's no reason that an unmarked mm. black helicopter should be flying directly over top of him. So that is, you know, alarming enough. And then he finds at the center of the coordinate points um, an empty Mylar balloon that just says happy birthday on it. And it kind of is like the most frustrating, confusing experience that you experience through him in that moment where you're just like, I think for him, he was expecting to find the entrance to a base or yeah. just something other yeah. than just a, a, a happy birthday balloon in the middle of nowhere, sitting on the ground at the exact spot where the coordinate points were. Well, then his uh, his iPhone battery started to go and he lost his yeah. GPS coordinates. So there was a very real possibility in this scene that that was going to be the last we would see of Tyler for a while because he was going to get lost oh, in the I woods. Thought, I thought he was dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah he- I, I was scared for him because he. we were on the phone with him. You don't see most of this, but we were on the phone with him until his battery died. And I'm oh. I'm looking at maps uh, saying, do not go north. You're going to go further into the national forest. And at the time, we were like reading all of the missing 411 stuff. And I was like, mm, no, yeah. he's going to be a statistic. <laughs> um, and uh, he's like, no, no, I think I can get there if I just follow this path. And he had no idea where the path was going. So I was genuinely concerned because the sun was going down. You know, it was, uh, gosh, it was like what, uh, December? Yeah, d- December, it was like January, December. Yeah. And oh, he, so it's um, freezing. It was going to rain. And I was like, oh, no, my friend is in trouble. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was preparing for the worst. So how did he get out of there? He luckily, in the moment, I think he knew well enough to try to find the highest possible uh, place that he could. And he hiked to the top of a mountain and just finally, like, made his way through the trees and could see a couple miles out uh, cars And he knew as long as I walk in a straight line towards that, I will pop out on the highway somewhere and I can start making my way back to my car. And he, he thankfully didn't walk in the opposite direction and headed right towards uh, his, his, where his car was, but it was just the most terrifying experience. I mean, we were like Greg said, I, I think we, all of us were looking at maps. We were trying to guide him without really knowing exactly where he was and knowing again, you know, the other thing about Tyler is he has to look cool all the time. So clearly he didn't wear like a proper winter coat or anything. And he was he's in just his like, uh, tactical uh, singlet. Yeah. And so thankfully, you know, after hours of us being terrified and I'm sure obviously him being terrified, he finally made it back to his car. Well, our, our paranoia too should preface this by saying our paranoia was at an all time high because the night that he was leaving for Brown Mountain, we got a new email that was almost exactly the same as the one we got from David years prior mm-hmm. that started this whole mess in the in the first place. And it was very suspicious that it happened right before Tyler was going down to where he was going. This one was even scarier mm-hmm. than the original ones. I'm so glad you brought this up. And, and some of my questions that I wrote down while I was watching the series was, you know, is this email from the same person? Is... is uh, 
this person whose name is Amy, use the name Amy in the show, is it David Christie? Are they the same person? So I'm glad you brought that up because this is really um, kind of a dark side to the whole show and this ends up going in a quite a terrifying direction. So yeah, what what was in this email and why did it get you so worried? So the original emails that came in from David were, you know, the subject line was something to the effect of, you know, urgent, please respond. Uh, and then this one said basically the same thing. Um, need help, urgent, please respond. Life or death. Life or death. Yeah, was in the was in the subject heading. And it was from someone who she said that uh, her name was Amy and she laid out this whole story about how she had stumbled upon some big conspiracy that involved, uh, she dropped a few key words from the original emails. And at this point, Hellier was not live. Mm -hmm. So no one, no one should have known anything we were doing or what we were onto. Right. And she uses the word uh, euphonauts, which was something that was uh, extremely important to the first case. And then in particular, she uses the word slough, uh, which was uh, an old like derogatory term that was used in Vietnam, which was applied to the so-called goblins by Terry Rist. And so she said she was sent to me by an unnamed source someone that she said knew I could help her with this problem. There were all these mirrors, but there was this whole darker side of the emails this time where it wasn't just little green men coming out of a, a mine shaft, stealing people's dogs. It was people are dying. People are being murdered. There's an underground uh, cave system where these, these people in hooded robes are doing rituals. Um, I found evidence of this stuff. I'm in danger. Uh, now you're on their radar because I've emailed you. Um, and I, I flipped out because I originally thought somebody saw Hellier yeah, before it, had it was somehow. supposed to be out. Somebody had seen a leak and somebody's trying to insert themselves into the story. Somebody's just messing with us. And that was, that was something that I think we would all be prepared for if Hellier had already been released. But right. again, at this point in time, it hadn't. So it definitely, I think, tails spin us each of us into a um a, a state of paranoia and then the scarier side is you know what if this is the you know terry all over again right before tyler's going to this place mm -hmm. by himself the timing was very suspicious and we were really really scared about what was i mean tyler was putting weird marks on his body and telling us you know if you if they find my body look for these marks so you know that it's actually me oh wow <laughs> It's and yeah, the bad. content of the email, I mean, it sounded crazy. And, and uh, oh, while I was sure. watching this, I was actually kind of laughing at the, the absurdity of it. Like, I, of I didn't I didn't think this person existed. You know, this was a tale of uh, some kind of secret society. Well, Long-robed sex like, cult. Pedophilic yeah. co uh, cult killings in some kind of underground chain. Like, it was just madness. Over um, the top. But, but when Tyler's out in the woods and he finds his way back to his car... There seemed to be some kind of suggestion that at least that area was being watched. Yeah, he had an entire undercover police force, like four or five cars uh, surrounding him. And the police chief basically escorted him out of town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> why? really strange. <laughs> like, exactly why? why the police there? What's going on? I mean, Tyler has a habit of attracting the law. <laughs> he, he gives off a bit of a sketchy vibe, but not that sketchy. Yeah. Like that was, uh, I mean, we were on the phone with him the whole time. And uh, when somebody came and knocked on his door, like the guy was playing clothes. 
um, he, uh, he was like, stay on the line, stay on the line. There's somebody here. And that's when he saw that there were like four or five other, uh, undercover police around him. Do they say anything to him? They ran his stuff. Um, they said, you know, what are you doing here? And he just kind of quickly said, well, I'm, I'm geocaching, which, uh, Smart. you know, I guess he sort of was. <laughs> and yep. he, he, the guy didn't know, he goes like, it was that like Bitcoin. He didn't know what it was. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> and uh, then just said, you know, we pay attention when strange men come around these parts. Uh, you're leaving, right? And Tyler said, yeah, I was just leaving. And they followed him out of the county. Well, it, it was extremely odd that a helicopter just suddenly showed up in this kind of out of the middle of nowhere place. Uh-huh. A black unmarked helicopter, Ben. And well, that was the first synchronicity because just a few weeks ago, Aaron did a deep dive into black helicopter madness and oh, it was just kind it. of an out of the blue thing. So that was the first thing where, and it was around the same time, Greg, that you had sent all the episodes to us to watch. Oh, which we hadn't oh, watched wow. yet. so weird. And we hadn't seen we hadn't them, until them until yesterday. This, yeah, until this week, I hadn't watched them. So I had no idea. And for some reason, this book just kind of popped up and I went, I'm going to do a show on this. And then all of a sudden, wow. Hellier's got it in it. It's weird. And there's more. If it was just that one isolated thing, I'd go, oh, it's a coincidence. But there's more. But we'll get to that. Well, I wanted to kind of, you know, speaking of the coincidences that we had with our recent research in season two of Hellier, I wanted to skip ahead a little bit and ask you about uh, Somerset in Kentucky and mm-hmm. why that location was important, um, how you were led there in the first place. So, I mean, what is the big deal about Somerset, Kentucky? So Somerset is where these emails came from. So this woman, Amy, said that all this stuff was happening in Somerset, Kentucky. And uh, we were surprised at first because it's a totally different part of Kentucky than Hellier. We expected we were going to be going back to Hellier. Um, but this this place in Kentucky is really interesting because as we started to look more into what we were actually doing, you know, what this phenomena might be, what could be causing all this stuff, we're constantly drawn back to the old like fae lore, fairy lore, things like that. And then one day I had this massive synchronicity before we went to Somerset where everything that was tossed at me was all related to Somerset, England, which is considered to most, you know, one of the birthplaces of some of the the most important fairy lore, like uh, Secret Commonwealth, which was written by Robert Kirk, which laid out all the secrets of the fae and how they operated and what they were like. That's right. It was your Twitter feed. You'd just woken up and checked your Twitter feed and you just saw Somerset and fairies in Somerset. On and on and on and on. And that was very much the same way that Carl was even drawn into this case was because of his Twitter feed. And so that, again, was another weird little synchronicity that happened that made us go, okay, we, we have to go to Somerset. But this woman, Amy, was claiming that all of this stuff was happening in Somerset and that we needed to go to Somerset. And one of the things that we had been working on since the first season is our, we have like straight up murder boards all over our, our offices. So I oh, have really? six, six big pin boards in my, on my office wall. I'm staring at them right now. And four of them are maps. I have a map of the U.S. and all of the places that seem important to this case. And then I have three maps of Kentucky. One of them is a cave density map. Another one is a geomagnetic anomaly map. And then another one is a map of old mines and quarries and uh, like iron deposits and things like that. And when I overlaid them on top of each other, uh, there were hot spots for everything right around Somerset. So it was obvious that there was something strange going on in Somerset, according to the maps that we'd been able to put together after season one. So we ended up going. That was the first place that we went 
with Tyler. That's when he w- went into the cave for the first time. And we found, we found bones from something large that was dragging stuff around in there. That's when we, we heard the voices further down into the cave. Amy talked about how that was where they were doing all these weird rituals. And um, there are so many news articles about mm-hmm. unexplained deaths in these caves. Yeah. So privately, one of the things that we were doing before and in and around the first time that Greg and Tyler went to Somerset is we were just basically looking into like any sort of strange reports in that area. And we were absolutely blown away with the amount of mysterious deaths and missing people and people having all sorts of strange experiences. And and a lot of them kind of were on the darker side. A lot of them did, you know, revolve around people being murdered or people going missing and it's kidnapped, David. kidnapping. Yeah. It started to paint this really disturbing image of what was going on in this town. And it was equally as disturbing because, you know, again, what in initially felt as if it was a cr- an email from a crazy person mm-hmm. full of just insanity started to actually feel, unfortunately, like we had to start taking a lot of what was in that email seriously, because there are all of these news stories and all of these people that live in the area who are validating it and backing up everything that she had said. So it, it all sort of started to come together and really paint this place as, you know, definitely somewhere that we needed to focus on and needed to go to. Yeah, I think the the season really kind of arcs up in its intensity when you reach Somerset. And kind of to add to what you guys are saying in terms of the stuff that happens there, this is almost like a exemplified by the existence of a paranormal museum and research center in Somerset. And there's a great, uh, you know, section of the f- the film where you're speaking to, is it the, I, I don't have his name in my notes, but the owner or the caretaker of the museum, what's his yeah, name? Yeah, Kyle, Kyle yeah, Kyle. That was great, especially when you guys, uh, I think Greg, you were questioning him about the existence of possible secret societies and the, in Somerset, and his attitude it's a subtle shift, but there's a certain uh, apprehension that comes in, oh, perhaps yeah, like a fear absolutely. that comes in. He's like, there's names I won't even say on camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he just goes a bit mum and doesn't want to want to say it. No. So it was creepy. What else What else did he have to say about Somerset in terms of what goes on there? Well, I mean, number one, it's weird that there's a paranormal museum in Somerset where, I mean, it's rural Kentucky. There's not a whole lot going on there. Um, but he would talked about how... There are uh, lots of UFO sightings, lots of weird stuff going around the lakes. Um, Particularly, there's a highway out there, Highway 39, which is kind of interesting because the number 93, uh, it becomes very important in the series. Um, Any threes and nines are something that we become fixated on weirdly. Highway 39 in particular, they talk about how there's, you know, they called them interlopers and they just seem to kind of pop into existence Mm -hmm. and they are all manner of things, anywhere from like giant leathery bat-like things that sound a lot like Mothman to, uh, you know, people in robes to little tiny men, um, all these things that sort of pop up around this area. And there's a, a really high density of strangeness that we start to get into uh, after Nate or after Kyle introduces us to Nate, who's another guy in town who is sort of like a collector of local folklore and history. And he's a filmmaker himself. This guy unloads all of this crazy stuff about how there's one of the largest quartz deposits in the world right under Somerset, plus 
there's one of the highest geomagnetic anomalies under Somerset. So there was another guy who was looking into the same type of stuff we were with like mineral deposits and geomagnetic anomalies independently of knowing any of this because these guys didn't know what we were actually in Somerset for. They just thought we were making a series about weird stuff. The sequence where Nate is unloading everything he's discovered on, you know, about Somerset, where he's revealing all this to you. This was really incredible, especially for us, because this goes back to our synchronicities with your, your recent season. So around again, around the time you had sent all the episodes to Aaron, uh, he starts, I don't even know how you got this I don't book, know how Aaron. I got the book. He starts going into Albert Budden's book, which is UFOs, Psychic Close Encounters, The Electromagnetic Indictment. And oh, wow. what his argument is essentially on is that these electromagnetic uh kind of hotspots uh, causing Induce. causing this paranormal activity. I think his argument was more that it was inducing people to see these things. Well, that's exactly what we were onto with the God helmet. That's part of the reason we were using the God helmet is because Michael Persinger believed the same thing. And, and he started to look, he even wrote a big paper in the 80s about how fault lines uh, were causing UFO sightings. And it was strange to see if there's places it, like it tied in so interestingly that we were using the God helmet to try and induce contact with it, it, some ethereal spirits, some beings, aliens, ultraterrestrials, whatever the phenomena, whatever you want to call it. And yet there we're finding there are places where it's almost like the whole place is a God helmet. Yeah, yeah. Well, this kind of topic, this uh, focus of research has just been thrust upon us in some weird way in the last two weeks because last week I had uh, Patty Greer on the show who's a crop circle researcher or filmmaker rather and she, uh, in her work, she mentioned uh, Levengood who did, W.C. Levengood who did scientific research on the nodes of the wheat in crop circles. Right. And he right. started to notice that this strange, there must be some kind of um, plasma or some kind of uh, heat, at least, there's some kind of energy that's applied to the stalks that lengthens the node in the wheat. And when I started looking into his research, I, I came across someone who had kind of teamed up with him almost as a, a business venture. His name was John Burke. And he wrote this book called Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. We spoke about this on the last uh, Plus Show of Mysterious Universe. And essentially, John Burke and Karj Halberg, his research um, colleague, they traveled all around the world to uh, megaliths, to uh, ancient pyramids, to Stonehenge, to Avebury, to sites in Central America. And they started to discover that each of these sites has in, uh, incredibly strange electro, electromagnetic um, kind of signature, <laughs> yeah. right? And as he's right, his whole theory is that the reason these ancient sites were built in those places is these ancient people understood these energies and they would build these temples or pyramids or stone circles to kind of amplify these technologies Bingo. to enhance seed. Uh, to enhance the seeds, and essentially this would give them a um, increase in their yield from their crops. That's his whole argument. But throughout this book, along the way, as they're going to all these places, he's dropping in experiences of seeing ghost lights, stories of uh, strange figures being seen. Um, he has experiences where he he goes up to a rock and he's overcome with emotion. He feels like his consciousness has shifted completely. And as he shifts around the rock, his magnometer is going crazy. And he sees this line of, uh, I think it was magnetite or That's quartz right, yeah. running through it. And so he started to notice all these strange things going on wherever there was this, uh, you know, high 
focus of this magnetic rock or quartz or whatever it was, electromagnetic frequencies. And here you are with this guy who's basically unloading what we've been <laughs> researching here on Mysterious Universe. And what, what we've been researching before he knew we were researching either. There's all these people who are coming to the same weird, it's almost like something is happening where people are being tweaked into the same information at the same time. Because this isn't the first time we've heard this. You know, since Hellier 2 has come out, it's been out two weeks now. There have been people all over the place who have emailed us to tell us, you guys are doing something that I've been doing. I've been looking right. into this and I don't know why. It's so weird. I mean, it's for other people listening, it might be like, oh, you know, that's kind of odd. But it, when you're in the thick of it, though, we notice these things. It is yeah. kind of strange. And, you know, Somerset itself, Nate mentioned that, yes, it's it has a huge deposit, doesn't it? It has a huge deposit of, of quartz. Yeah, there's a huge deposit of quartz and coupled with the uh, the geomagnetic anomaly, it does, it's a, such a massive geomagnetic anomaly that it pulls the Van Allen radiation belt down to try and touch it. That's how strong it is. It's insane. With those two things together, it creates the piezoelectric effect, which a lot of uh, prominent parapsychologists have said causes things like hauntings. It causes people to hallucinate things and see strange things and maybe even affect people's brain activity. You know, the, the places that we go to in, in season two, uh, a lot of them, there's a super insanely high mental illness rate so high that they can't even take care of them in their towns. They have to ship them off to another, a bigger city. So it seems to be that things are pointing that there are uh, natural causes for a lot of this strange stuff. And if there are people who are compelled to do strange things, this might have something to do with it. There might be a natural cause to it. Yeah, it is this really kind of weird scientific side to this because the, the thing with the work Aaron's been doing, what's that author's name again? Albert um, Button. Albert Button. Is he's, His argument, again, is that it's the these electromagnetic frequencies uh, inducing hallucinations. Sure, and they and they very well may be. Well, I was going to say I don't I don't actually buy that. I don't actually buy that. I feel like they're allowing almost a perception mm. of something that mm. is already See, at these locations. That's I think what we believe now mm. uh, more than ever is that these things. You know, it started with with playing with the god helmet and doing research with this god helmet. It's, it's almost exactly what you start to see in places that are deemed holy sites. They have the same type of thing or places that are haunted houses. They have the same types of effects. Uh, the God helmet itself induces these types of effects. So it's, it's strange to see that now we're finding there are places. We, we have the maps. We have the tools to find these things. And we can look at these maps, overlay them. And now we can go to any of these towns that are hot spots in like four out of five of these things and probably find some insanely weird stuff within minutes. Turn your dreams into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace has the tool for you. And they've got those beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks so you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box so there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever and buying domains is simple. You'll get all the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. 
Squarespace empowers millions of people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash MU for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash MU, offer code MU. Well, at this point, I wanted to ask Dana what the experience is like of using the God helmet. I mean, do, do you actually see things? Do you have visions? Is it a, an effect just in your mind or do you feel things going on in your body? What's it like? So I've probably at this point, I don't know, probably about 25 times, 25 to 30 times I've tried the using the God helmet and it's always, it's a, it's a little bit of everything. So um, I do have a lot of uh, visual, I guess, hallucinations, uh, a lot of um, really strong sensations that come along with it but it's usually in the uh three to ten days after it, it it's mostly around the third day but it's three to ten days after having a god helmet session you are you have a lot of physical experiences i mean like i've felt pokes and prods and heard things that weren't there or at least i didn't think were there in the moment um but they tend to uh yeah they tend to happen after the fact so when you're having the experience, it's sort of, um, I think I've described it as a bit as if it's a reality shift. So you you don't feel as if in, you're in your regular waking state. Right. Uh, I have a lot of visuals that will come to me. And, and usually when I'm doing, obviously when I'm doing it, Greg's there. So we keep track of everything that kind of pops into my mind to see if, if any of it, you know, comes back around in the long run. Um, but yeah, in the days that follow, you do have some really strange experiences and and um, I've kind of gotten used to them now and just sort of document them as much as I possibly can. But um, it can be anything from having uh, out of nowhere, an overwhelming feeling of being in the presence of something that feels divine or something that sometimes feels frightening. Um, and those are those are pretty regular experiences. You know, one of the things that uh, I think I mentioned in in the documentary is, is that the 10 days that follow, I'm a bit of a space cadet because yes. I, it's as if I'm living kind of one foot in, one foot out. And um, it's hard for me to sort of ground myself. And and so I kind of just let everybody know, like, I'm going to be a little bit loopy for a little while. <laughs> Dana, are you continuing to use it or are you a little, little bit more apprehensive now? I, I I think most of my apprehension was in the beginning when I didn't really know what to expect. And I, I wasn't sure what the experiences were going to be like. Uh, but I think more so recently, I mean, I, I don't necessarily use it recreationally, but I think <laughs> we definitely use it in terms of the investigations that we do. So whenever we're we're heavily investigating something, specifically when we're we're working on Hellier and we're working on that case, uh, I tend to use the God Helmet a lot more because, again, it's this really amazing tool that we can utilize for uh, everything that we're doing. And so, yeah, I tend to focus, I, I tend to use it a lot more in and around the the case. It's like a portable haunted house. It kind of yeah. is. <laughs> I know. That's why I keep bringing it up because I want one. You can get one. Yeah. If you just, just ask, just talk right. to Todd Murphy. <laughs> I'm going to try this just them. ask method. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a point. Remember I mentioned earlier, you get this crazy email from Amy. And I'm questioning, and I think you're questioning, and probably most viewers are questioning whether there's actually anyone called Amy. Because it's extreme. It just seems too, you know, too over the top, Mm. this this stuff. And it's just like the David email, and that guy wasn't real. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and then we just find you talking to her. (laughs) Sitting in a car, getting a Wi-Fi hotspot, talking to someone in jail. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that happened was just like the David emails, another weird parallel was she had disappeared and we had no idea what happened to her. But unlike the David emails, almost as a weird response, like an answer to all the frustration we had with the David emails, this woman gave her driver's license to us. Her she gave her birth. date of birth, her address. She I gave, think she gave us her social. Like all kinds everything. of information. Yeah. So we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt from the get-go that this woman was real. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could look her up. And that's the first thing we did. And when she disappeared, we were able to find out that she had gone to jail. And we set up a, a we thought, so it's really interesting because you have this idea of what a prison interview, like a jail interview is going to be like. And you think you're going to have to go in and it's going to be sitting between a glass, <laughs> piece of glass. Yeah, with the old phone. Yep, you bake and a we, cake and put a file oh, on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we had this whole thing where we had this discussion. We're like, well, this is the tough part about, about making a documentary about an active case is you want to do things when there's a camera rolling. And we didn't know if we'd be able to do it. So we're like, how are we going to sneak in uh, something to record? to record this interview. Like it's going to be audio only. Carl's going to have to you know, have somebody, he's going to have to have interesting graphics in the background or whatever. And as we're doing this and we're researching, you know, what visitation hours are, how to get in touch with her, we see, which was news to us, there's basically like a, an inter-prison Facebook system where you can give these people, you, you give, you know, the inmate $25 or whatever, and then you can text them 25 oh, cents wow. a text. And they have tablets and you can Skype them, which seems crazy to me. It was nothing like we expected. So it worked out well for us because we could just plan the time. And there was a, there was a solid week where we sat there waiting for her to respond to whether or not she was going to actually talk to us. And, um, yeah, one day we got the, we got the, the ding and it said the you know inmate has accepted your request for a video chat. Now this is a shocking uh, sequence because she's really reiterating everything she said in the email that there is this group. They are very very dangerous. They are involved in uh, some kind of cult, uh, some kind of occult practice that is killing people. It's using blood. It's so using also worshiping the green man or the goblins as well. Was that part of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that, that kept popping up in the first initial email was the fact that she said these people worship the green man, which stuck out to Dana. You know, Dana's a witch. And so she has knowledge of the green man as a God, as like a nature spirit. And in that same day that we got that email, Tyler, when he stumbles out of the woods, the first thing he sees is carved on this tree is a green man. And so it's one of those synchronicities that made us go, we need to pay attention to this. So we, when talking to her, she starts talking about how these people worship the green man. But it's almost as if the phenomena was changing to get us interested in things that were important because by the time we talked to her, she's back to saying they worship the little green men. Yeah, right. Which was a totally weird twist we didn't expect. So it came all the way back again to goblins. And she said she'd seen them herself. They were lime green. They were short. They look kind of like Gollum, um, which sounds a lot like what David saw and described and is in some of the photos he sent. And that these people go to these caves and they perform these weird ceremonies and mm-hmm. worship these strange beings. Now, this this woman was saying that uh, she had been kind of almost set up in a way. She was kind this of slapped, in jail. slapped with a felony. Now, my memory of this is fuzzy because I've just watched so much in the last kind of couple of hours. But 
wasn't this um, very similar to someone else who had started to investigate this, who had had, uh, you know, they'd been hit by a car eventually and they had a... Oh, this was know, Nate talking about that it. Was that, that's it. Yeah. It was Nate oh, yeah. saying it was a similar case in Somerset. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nate talked about how there had been severe consequences to people who started looking into this type of stuff. These sort of eyes wide shut parties that were happening and all of the strange activity. One of the things that we cut out of the documentary, because this is the other weird line that we have to, to walk is we have to take all of this stuff from people and just sort of present it as is like, we all react to it differently. We all internalize it in a different way, but we're also very aware that we don't want to start like a new satanic panic in this town. Every town has these strange legends. We don't want to start like a pizza gate or anything like that. We we're just presenting what people are telling us. And then we have to figure out how much of this we actually believe. Mm -hmm. But the thing with Somerset is there, there is a lot of strange stuff in that town and all people have to do is start looking into the history of it and they can find the stuff themselves. But there was a police chief who was looking into this type of stuff and Nate said that one day after he had decided he was going to shut all this type of stuff down, he was going to go after it. This guy, a sniper, took him out at a public barbecue. What the hell? And that was just, we just thought it was too much to include because, yeah. again, we didn't want to lean too hard on that because that's not, like, we're paranormal investigators. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yes. we yeah. want the ghosts and the goblins and the god helmets. Uh, we don't necessarily want the the cult murders, but and, we're sort of have to, to take it in stride now. Yeah. And like you mentioned, you know, it's uh, all of that information is readily available to anyone who all you have to do is just Google it. You know what I mean? Like that's we kind of wanted to leave it there. So it was as if if that's the side of it that you're really interested, all it would take is just Googling it and you'll find all that information yeah. pretty easily. But it just felt um we, it felt as if it was something that we kind of wanted to distance ourselves from a little bit. So the, for, the problem was there was precedent yeah. for this type of stuff in Somerset. Yeah. Um, every, every small town has its, its darker sides and its secrets, but most of them are just folklore, you know, local legends. But there's definitely some dark stuff that's happened in Somerset. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we were scared out of our minds. Yeah, I mean, this really comes across well in, in the film, especially Connor's reaction. You know, he's really well, he's done. He's, he yeah. wants to get out of there immediately. Connor was ready to get in the car and leave. We all quit. Yeah. Like there were there were various moments of season two where every single one of us kind of had that moment where we were like, I think I'm done, guys. Mm -hmm. I don't think I want to do this anymore. It's not fun. But you're right, though. There is this shift. It's almost like the phenomena, you, you're being directed in some way. And the green man was really this big kind of clue that sent you off in a different direction. Maybe if if you can, you can give us a, a rundown of the Green Man archetype and and what it kind of represents. Uh, so yeah, the Green Man. I mean, it, for the most part, it's something that you. A lot of us actually have probably seen. It's it's usually on older buildings, specifically in Europe. And the Green Man is an archetype or a deity, a spirit, a nature spirit that a, a lot of pagans uh, work with and a lot of pagans pay reverence to. And he's been around for a long time and he, he, you know, he really, for the most part, uh, that archetype embodies the wilds, the wilderness, the hunt. Um, and he, he has many different faces and sometimes he's referred to as Pan and he, again, he has many different faces, but he's, he is an archetype. He is, uh, an embodiment of nature as a, as a spirit itself. I just thought of another synchronicity because when 
Hellier season one came out, that's when we were doing Aaron on Mysterious Universe, the the book, the rebirth the Jim, of Pan, the Jim Brandon book. Yeah. Oh, oh god, <laughs> I love it's it. The precise time. Which, it's like the precise time you guys were probably yeah. looking into it. We had wow. found a copy of the book. We were doing it on the show. Uh, we were just listening to that old episode. Oh my god! Before and that's we spoke such a, to you, such a pivotal book, specifically this season. It was so important to everything that. Yeah, it, it, it came to us to. at a really weird time, a very synchronistic time where somebody that we knew, because you guys know how hard it is to get a copy of this book. Yeah. Yeah. This, we got a photocopied this. PDF version. So do we. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. some, a friend of ours actually went and, and he went to a library. He had to drive like an hour and a half to go to this library and he photocopied every page, turned it into PDF and then sent it to us because he thought we'd be interested. And he sent it at just the perfect time. And, and that book is, I mean, it's weird, super weird, especially as it ties into the Hellier case, because there's all this stuff about three-toed tracks mm-hmm. and then power names. And the power names ended up becoming one of the maps that we made because he mentions a couple specific power names, which are David, uh, or he, he mentions the, the name Parsons and Pike. Well, one of the things, spoiler, that we find out in season two is that this house that we couldn't find that we thought was David's house, well... It had burned to the ground, which was why we were which is able why we to couldn't find, find it. it. And yeah, then right. we find out the person who owned it wasn't David M. Christie; it was David M. Parsons, which oh, is weird. bizarre. Yeah, and, and so there's a power name there, and it's almost like, oh, this is another clue. It's not the destination; it's just another signpost on this journey. And so that book cracked open a whole new section, and that's another one of those things too, where. You know, we we sort of walked a line with whether we wanted to even include that book so much because the the author of it is so notorious and and strange. You know, we were nervous about that too, but it, we just couldn't. There was no way around it. Well, yeah, again, you just went off in this uh, not a completely different direction, but it's almost like another door was opened and off you guys go. And the whole time I was watching season two, because I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but when you were on for season one back in January, we were talking to you about the secret cipher of the UFO noughts. And I said to you, after we we spoke to you, I'm going to get a copy. Like, I'm going to buy all the copies on Amazon (laughs) and dive into this because it sounds insane. And I finally tracked down a a copy. It came into the, the office and I started reading it just going... Why is there so many numbers in this? It's so <laughs> complicated. What is going on? This isn't full of fun stories. This requires no. a calculator and, you know, grid paper. That mm-hmm. book is bizarre and kind of mad. But, you it know, thank, thankfully you've got the the genius of your team. I think it was uh, Carl who kind of started doing the, the code himself, started figuring Using out the, the cipher. So correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially what... Greenfield, the the author of this book, what his theory is, is that the contactees who meet these UFO noughts, who meet these uh, space aliens, their names are some kind of code. And Mm -hmm. when you apply this cipher, which he claims he's figured out, to the names of people like Injured Cold, people like... uh, um, skipping on contactee people, but you apply it to the the entities that contact DC, you get the real message that's behind it. What what do you yeah. guys what do you guys think of this? Do you think there's something to it? We've seen in, in action enough now that we know that there's something to it. Yeah, and that is that's the weirdest part because the way that the cipher works is um, it, it uses a book that Alistair Crowley channeled, which is called the Book of the Law, 
And it's all channeled from this, this ultra terrestrial entity, this, this extra normal entity. And you're actually supposed to burn the book after you read it. And people figured out years and years later, there was some sort of code because Crowley had hinted there was a code to this book. So people started to figure out this code. And once they cracked it, um, Greenfield started to realize that if you applied this, this cipher to f- what he calls funny names that pop up in paranormal cases, w- something maybe Jim Brandon would consider a power word, right. you start to get clues. And what those clues do is they link up to specific passages in the book of the law. And one of the things that's noted in the back of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts in an interview with this guy who says his name is Terry Rist is that he used the secret cipher to find out where Indrid Cold lived. And he lays out this whole story. It seems way too good to be true, that he uses this cipher, he goes to this town, and he meets Indrid, knocks on his door, and finds him because of all the clues that he was able to pull out of Indrid Cold's name and the value of his name. So one of the things that Carl did is Carl goes, if that's true, we should be able to do the same thing because he gives enough clues in secret cipher to find out what, how to do this yourself, but he doesn't list the name of the town. So Carl spent time preening through this, this cipher and then looking at maps and finds the town of Ashland, Kentucky. And we decide, well, that's only a couple hours from us when we're in Cincinnati. Let's go and find Ashland and we'll see if we can find Indrid Cold's house. Now, if there's anyone listening who doesn't know who Indrid Cold is, we should point out that this is a famous contactee case from the 1960s where Woody Derenberger is kind of pulled over by a flying saucer. A weird kind of (laughs) grinning man knocks on his window and it's this guy introducing himself as Indrid Cold. Uh, famous case in this fantastic audio of Woody Derenberger uh, describing his, his encounter. It features uh, prominently in in the Mothman Prophecies movie and the Mothman Prophecies book, too, which is how I think most people are familiar with it. Right. So we said, okay, we should be able to do the same thing then. If this cipher is for real, if this story is for real, we should be able to do the same thing. So we drive to Ashland, which is a very strange place in and of itself. We start walking around. We talk to the local police. A policeman talks to us and tells us, you know, there's a really weird level of uh, mental illness in this area. Again, another Again, really yeah. strange thing. And there's something weird about Ashland, too. It, it felt very, you know, it's sort of similar to the feeling of Hellier and the feeling of Somerset. And it's kind of, you know, for somebody who's done the God Helmet enough, it's like a, you get kind of fine-tuned to the... It's, a, it's like a place that's been hit with a tuning fork and it's a sensation, it's like a vibration that you sort of just pick up on, innately pick up on. Yeah, right. And, and you, you check it on the map and, and it's a massive geomagnetic yep, anomaly. And everything right there. starts lining up. <laughs> so we start poking around and find the local library and we start going through business records. And one of the clues that's mentioned in, in Secret Cipher is that Indrid's house was near a, a restaurant called The Wagon Wheel. Um, wagon wheel was another one of the values that he used, uh, that popped up. So he, we, we go to this library, we pull out all these business records and sure enough, there was a wagon wheel there in the seventies, the same time that this guy said he met Indrid cold and we were able to walk down and stand at that site and see that that house used to exist, but now it's a parking lot. And it was the only thing that had been demolished there are yeah. all of the other original buildings i mean on most of the clues that 
are in that um, in that little chapter or that little paragraph that's kind of giving giving you hints on where Indrid lived. Mm-hmm. All of those things are still there, still standing. It's just Hall's wagon wheel was yep. not standing. It's bizarre that Indrid Cold spent so much time here. It's it's a weird thing to consider. He's some kind of extraterrestrial if we if we use that term, and yet. You know, we hear in in the series from Woody Derenberger's daughter mm-hmm. that injured cold kind of became a family friend. Yeah, I mean, they they talk about how he was. Uh, uh, well, one of the things that Terry says in the back of Secret Cipher is that Indrid is on the lam. He's he's hiding from something, and that he chose Ashland specifically because it was close enough to where Point Pleasant was. And and he said that Point Pleasant, what happened in Point Pleasant, was a distress signal for mm-hmm. something which is very strange because uh in the email i got from terry it said hellier was just a symptom almost like it might have been a distress signal of some kind and so there's this this narrative that starts to shape uh that has been happening for decades and indrid allegedly stuck around and hung out and was a family friend of tanya's and that's the craziest thing is because we wanted to talk to somebody who met Indrid Cold. What was Indrid Cold like? If this was person, this person, this entity existed and was here on this planet, what would they be like? Well, Woody Derenberger's gone, but Tanya was there. She was a kid. She has this story in her book about making a, a cardboard spaceship with Indrid and playing like they were going to space together. She met the man, and yet she's just sitting there in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and no one is paying any attention to her. I found her Facebook page today. It's yeah, super weird. Yeah. She's just dropping all these prompts on how she's going to re- release a book about it. It's been mm-hmm. delayed yep. till February next year. She's yep. going to reveal all. Uh, it's it's a pretty wild story. And just the idea that Indrid Cold was still around really blew me away. But still, I'm wondering what the... Again, this is a question of a bigger picture here. Like, what does all this mean? <laughs> Where is it all... <laughs> heading i mean this is the ultimate thing right because you guys go off in so many different forks off this path but what is the main path you know that was a question that we asked greenfield you know alan greenfield one of the big moments of the second season is sitting down with him you know we wanted to do it in the first season but we didn't really know what we were doing and so we finally get a chance to sit down with greenfield the author of the secret cipher of the euphonauts a guy that's been a figure in so many uh, of the biggest paranormal cases uh, in history and he's just sort of at the background of them like he wrote the introduction to gray barker's silver bridge the guy's been around he's seen stuff and he's he thinks and I, and again i don't know how much of this i want to believe <laughs> i think just the implications of this i'm uncomfortable with but he says point blank you're being guided by the secret chiefs to make this project to present this information to the world so that people look at this stuff differently and they can come to a, a new understanding of the phenomena, which maybe is the whole reason. You know, one of the things that we're constantly being told, see, that this show has resonated with occultists in a way we never anticipated. Yeah. Because again, we thought we were going to hang out with goblins in a backyard at some guy's <laughs> house in Kentucky. That was what we started. But people picked up on the first season. They said, you're doing an initiatory uh, journey. There's something here that's an initiation and it might not even just be for you. It might be for the viewers. And really season two uh, is w- much, much more of that. I really do think season two 
is in and of itself a ritual that the viewers are taking part in. Because when you start to look, all you have to do is go to the Hellier hashtag on Twitter and you see these responses from people and the way that it's changing their thinking and the feelings it's, it's evoking. I think Hellier in and of itself is some sort of a ritual. And we're not even sure where the, where the, the end point is. We just know we're doing something that's more important mm. than what we had originally thought. What do you think, Dana? Because I guess you're more magically inclined. I mean, you, you practice, you're a Wiccan practitioner. Mm-hmm. What are your I, thoughts on this whole ritual idea? I think one of the most fascinating things has been, like Greg had mentioned, has been the response. And I think that for us, it has felt like an initiation. It, without a doubt, has felt like an initiation. But what's fascinating to me is how many people once they're finished watching and once they're finished kind of digesting it and understanding it, feel as if they've gone through an initiation themselves and, and are experiencing these massive, almost paradigm shifts. They're, they're, they're looking at the world differently, which I think is, it's unbelievable. And I think that it's incredible to see people that authentically are having these experiences. So yeah, I think, I, I think that that is definitely an element of what is going on. I think that when you look at this entire project, um, and again, I, you know, we could never have known this going into it, but I do think that it is it is a massive ritual and that the people that are watching, if they're in the right headspace and they're meant to be initiated, then they are. And, and um, just seeing people's responses to it alone has been enough to, you know, make me incredibly confident in, in the fact that that's what I think is actually going on. Well, Helia really has become a phenomenon. I mean, you guys are a modern phenomenon and you can just see how people get excited and get drawn in with this. But there's one thing that I want to broach the, the topic with you guys on is that there's inherent dangers in interfering or not even interfering, but simply interacting with this phenomenon. And there's something that you touched on a little bit earlier there, Greg, which was you were talking about Somerset in the UK and being associated with having, um, you know, fey folk encounters and, and similar sorts of activities. But the guy that was involved in writing one of those books, I think his name was Kirk, you said. And, Robert Kirk. Right. And the book that he wrote detailed stories essentially about the fey folk not liking people exposing them and then dragging them away. And the thing yeah. is that you're the new Kirk, and your name is I, I Newkirk. Know. Is it a threat? <laughs> I am fully aware and fully disturbed by it because uh, it's, I mean, it's, here's the thing. The unexplained in and of itself is full of dangers. Uh, I mean, it, we're, we're not people to preach fear. Like that's the opposite of what we, what we preach. But you, when you don't know what you're getting into, of course there's going to be danger, but you don't ever achieve anything if you just stop because you have a fear of, of the unknown, yeah. fear of the unknown leads to so many problems, even in, in our everyday lives. Uh, if you can have curiosity about the world and push through that fear, you're going to learn a lot more about it. And like, here's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I am very fortunate. I think we all are that we have a group of people that are different enough that none of us all go crazy at the same time. We don't all like it. We all spiral. But there's always someone who's stepping back who doesn't totally buy into everything and they can pull us back out and we can keep each other on the straight and narrow, so to speak. Um, 
And, and we're really lucky uh, because not everybody has that. And you start to see it with a lot of researchers, particularly solo researchers. Like John Keel went nuts, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, w- one of the things that I did a lot of part of my job in the second season was there's a, a website, johnkeel.net. And it's run by Doug Skinner, who was a friend of John Keel's, who got all of his old files when he passed away. And he just uploads letters that this guy wrote. And you start to read it and you see there are letters where Keel is writing to the ultra terrestrials, pleading with them to leave him alone because they're driving him crazy, pleading with him to, to not do what they're doing in the world. He completely went nuts. But I think it was because he was by himself. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have that. You've got a team, you've got cameras and you're getting all this attention. Going back to the the idea of this being some kind of ritual, uh, you mentioned there, Greg, that uh, Greenfield said that you were being directed by the secret chiefs, and I've I've got to ask you if you've if you're familiar with uh, Hokan Blomqvist's work. He's a ufologist, a researcher from Sweden. Uh, I don't looked? believe I am. No. So Blomqvist, uh, he's got a website. It's ufoarchives.blogspot.com, and on that site, he has a free PDF of his. It's in English, and it's kind of a rundown of his decades and decades of research. I mean, the guy's been from the contactee period on, he's been deep in this. And it's really intriguing hearing the guy talk about his ultimate conclusions because he's very versed in the occult. He's very versed in uh, ufology in the contactee period, the whole thing. And his ultimate takeaway, what he thinks is is going on, is that the contactee period where we see in the, the 60s and and 70s and the 50s, actually, we, we see George Adamski, you know, Billy Mayer, uh, Orfeo Angelucci, George King, all those all the classics. famous contactee, those classic stories. He believes that this was an attempt by some group, I think he actually may use the term the secret chiefs, to essentially describe or to do what you're describing, to influence society, perform a paradigm shift. And they were using the medium of... UFOs, they were using the medium of these contacts to shift people's consciousness, shift people's understanding, shift the way people think on a mass scale. And Blomqvist believes they failed. Because if you look at all these contactees in this period, they all lost their way. You know, Adamski kind of... Fame got them. Adamski started doing hoax because he started, you know, running like almost a sex cult. Um, Billy Mayer started faking things. Orfeo Angelucci lost the plot. All these guys... They went off the wagon in some way. They couldn't keep it together. And it's like, this, this, it's almost, when you said that it's some kind of ritual, some kind of attempt, it's being orchestrated by something else, it reeks of what Hakan Blomqvist claims happened in the 1960s. Now, this group, whoever's behind this, they haven't given up. And there's the idea that there's a, another attempt we made using a different medium, using a different way of um, you know shaping people's thinking, making this change. Yeah, the new cooks. The new cooks. <laughs> yeah, well, geez. I mean, it's it's fascinating too because one of the things that we uh, we talk a lot about, and and some of it's privately, but some, but you know, it is things that we do talk quite a bit about, is remaining remi- reminding ourselves that this project isn't about us. Yeah, if that makes sense. That yeah. like. What we're doing isn't, it's not, it has nothing to do with us. It really doesn't have anything to do with us. We're just sort of facilitating this project. We, and that, we joke a lot about how the executive producer of Hellier is the phenomena. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's meant to be a, a reminder to keep your ego in check, that to not allow yourself to make it about your yourself. Because you, again, like when you look, part of what's fascinating about the process, you know, when you think about abductees is so often they do get to this point where it becomes about them and it becomes an ego mm -hmm. thing. And then that's when things sort of start to take a nosedive. So it's been something that like we have all talked about quite often is the idea of remembering that this doesn't really have anything to do with us, that and, we're and just we're, documenting what's happening around us. And we're probably, I mean, I know we're not the only people this is happening. Oh to. yeah. No, no. There are other people that are having this happen to them. They just don't have the luxury of having a, a group of talented friends who know how to make documentaries. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and, and so this, we're not, I, I truly don't believe we're alone in this. There are other people that are experiencing this, this uh, initiation, this ritual. And I think it's happening all over the place. And, and I think really do truly honestly believe that Hellier is for the viewers even more so than it is for us. Well, you can really see that in the response online as well. You know, I, yeah. I was reading tweets today of people hashtagging Hellier and a lot of it is sentiment of, I can't wait to just think more deeply about this. I can't wait to really have a conversation with someone about this. It's it's more um, kind of opening the gates to something else, to to getting people thinking in a different way about these things. But Ben and I, I want to ask both Greg and Dana this, you know, separately. What do you two think this initiation will lead to? What's the purpose? I like to think that the purpose of it is to. <laughs> I think the best way that I could possibly put it is that is to change the way that people are experiencing their waking reality, if that makes sense, to to pay attention to things. So I've I've been referring to it as almost like a re-enchantment that that people start to uh, remember the world is a magical place and that the synchronicities are magical and that they are signposts leading us in certain directions and to remember contact that aspect of yourself and to to allow that to be your waking reality because it's i think in a lot of ways the way that we should be and again like i said you know i've really been looking at it and thinking about it in terms of a re-enchantment and a reminding people of what that magic really is all about it's a really good point i think for me um we operate in a really weird space so there's there's two things uh, there's there's something i'm insanely proud of when it comes to hellier and it's the fact that I've never seen a paranormal documentary series or a paranormal reality show that has made people want to go buy stacks of books. Yeah. <laughs> that to me is the biggest accomplishment. So if we don't accomplish anything else, you know, we release Hellier for free. We don't really make money on this thing. Uh, we want people to consume it. You know, the, the fact that people watch it and become part of it, that as you see in episode six of season two, which is the release of Hellier one becomes part of the case because other people stumble onto something we don't know. There are people smarter than us that can give us direction. So the fact that we're making people come out of season two with a stack of books like 20 deep that they never normally would have read that, that show all these different aspects of paranormal phenomena and, and, and UFO phenomena and, and you know, cryptozoology, whatever, magic, um, even psychology, that's insane to me, and I'm insanely proud of that. But I also think part of it is, like Dana said, re-enchanting re the world. We're living in an extremely cynical time period. It's really hard to not be cynical about anything. 
and it's really hard to not think that there's there's things like magic and 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 the paranormal active in the world and so i think part of what this 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 reenchantment is doing is it's helping people look past the cynicisms that they've built up around themselves for a long time and i know for me i mean you see it you 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 literally see <laughs> You see me become a pagan <laughs> in the 10th <laughs> episode, which is insane for me to even say, because five years ago, you know, uh, someone who's raised extremely religious, uh, you, you just have that voice that never leaves. You can leave the religion behind. You can leave the, you know, Christianity behind um, or whatever. But you always have that voice in the back of your head that says, like, you're going to go to hell for this. And in episode 10 you see what i do that voice doesn't exist anymore it's gone oh wow and i think it's going to do that for a lot of people yeah we're definitely not talking about goblins anymore are we <laughs> no i don't think so that's crazy yeah I, that, that is that final uh episode is really eye-opening i don't really want to spoil it for for everyone no we won't um it's funny <laughs> that you you're mentioning uh enchantment because you know another researcher I've recently been lo looking into on the show is John Michelle and John Michelle he's written uh books about the, well, the dimensions of paradise sacred geometry um the last one we covered was sacred number in the golden age and essentially he makes an argument very early on that ancient societies lived with enchantment everything surrounding them was enchantment the way they thought uh the way their society was structured and organized it it kind of helped this it created helped create an enchantment and you know there's a good argument that that has completely been it's sucked gone. dry from our of course absolutely modern yeah. way of living and that that is a huge uh, problem it needs to be reintroduced yeah. we talk a lot about initiation and i read a lot of books about initiation from from a psychology perspective and uh I, his name escapes me at the moment but he wrote a fantastic book called The Archetype of Initiation, which is not a paranormal book. It has nothing to do with, with the paranormal. But it's about how in our day and age, the rites of initiation are gone. No one has those anymore. There used to be very well-established initiation rites for every culture. And now they've, they've, they're gone. And it's leading to failed initiations, which, which leads people to, to search for this sense of communitas in things like, you know, they go to rock concerts and they, or they go to church and they go to, you know, whatever it is. They, some, some of them turn to drugs, but they're not having an actual initiatory experience and that in and of itself might lend itself to uh, disturbing paranormal phenomena, poltergeist activity and All weird right. things like that, which are pushing you to have an initiatory experience. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's a big part of what's missing in today's society, too. Our people need that sort of experience. And when they turn to magic, when they turn to ritual, they get that. Mm -hmm. It's been missing. So it is a re-enchantment of the world. Well, there's the huge lead that you guys get towards the end of this season in terms of a specific ritual and its name. And <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to ask if you've started working on season three and I want to get a sense of the direction that you're going to head because I presume there's going to be a season three, right? You're not just going <laughs> to leave us hanging here. I uh, think people keep watching. <laughs> there maybe there will be. be. Yeah, um, can, can you give us a sense? I don't like sense? that maybe word. <laughs> <laughs> can you give us a sense of where you're going? I don't think we have a choice. Yeah. Yeah, I think great. we, we here, I'll, I'll tease this much to you. This is how much of a weird thing Hellier is and why it's so important that we release it the way we do. 
five hours after season one dropped. It was exclusive to Amazon Prime for two weeks. Five hours after that first season dropped on Amazon Prime, we got an insanely massive lead that is 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 just a juggernaut of an insane, mind breaking lead that we're all saying we need a break, man. We need to <laughs> we need a break. We can't do this constantly. And I don't know. We're probably going to be shooting stuff sooner rather than later because this lead is so insane. Yeah. Um. It just doesn't stop. And give us a clue. The hint. Come on. It's got. Give us something that's related to some kind of direction. I mean, it has to do with the the big revelations of the last episode. Okay. I mean, where, where there is a very clear direction, a clear, very clear path uh, through the forest that has been carved for us, and and connections yes. that that make that will go that go back across pretty much every episode. I'll say this: there are insanely huge people who were also led to this same type of ritual. Oh, okay without having any idea who we are. They never would have known or who we were. And it has to do with how they were led there and where they were led there. Where they were led. And the beginning is the end and the end is the beginning. (laughs) And we are bound to return to the places that started this case. You two have to stop messing with our heads. (laughs) (laughs) That's the hardest part is keeping secrets because... I am not good at that. <laughs> oh, dude, imagine season one when there were so many people who were like, I thought this was about goblins. We were, like yeah. nothing happened. And we're sitting there going, no, no, there is stuff it's happening. And it's huge, but we can't talk about it yet because it's just a prologue. And yeah, we kept so trying as, as much as we possibly could to refer to it as a prologue. So people would know, oh, there's more. Oh, OK, this is leading towards what we're, you know, what we're going to be doing. So yeah. but it was very hard keeping secrets for so yeah. long. Because you can understand why people would go in and be like, oh, they're going to find this cave of goblins. Yeah. This is going to be crazy. And then, well, oh, we no, did wait. put a goblin on the poster like a bunch of dummies. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you did do that. Yeah. And it was we a knew, good goblin. We knew what we were getting into. I even told Carl when we did the first season, I was like, man, are you sure about this? I don't think we're going to find goblins in the state of paranormal television. <laughs> if we if we promise goblins and we don't deliver, there's going to be some mad people. <laughs> but uh, it was necessary. It was a necessary prologue. Well, like I said, the the first couple of episodes in season two had that kind of slow burn that the first season had. But event, I mean, eventually, I was just really in it. I mean, Aaron and I watching it on double speed. <laughs> we were. <laughs> it was really really fantastic. Again, huge congratulations, guys. We hope uh, they keep getting the success it deserves again thank you so much for coming on the show and spending time on us and and thanks for dropping a little bit of audio of us in season in episode six that was fun to see oh of course we we love you guys you guys have always been uh, amazing to us and any any chance we get to come and hang out with you guys yeah, we'll take. thank you so much oh you're welcome you guys i know you're always welcome well there is this secret cipher clue in australia <laughs> which you have to come out here i'll tell oh, you yes. what it is when you get I know. here oh let's do it we're it's yeah. done we're, we'll it's, come out it's you on a tropical beach. Yeah, it's on a tropical beach, and there's a secret oh, even thing. There, we. I'm on my way there right we're, now. We're there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, guys, and yeah, we can't wait to have you back. We'll be back Absolutely. whenever you want. Absolutely, anytime. Thank you.
huge thanks again to Greg and Dana for appearing on the show. Hellier Season 2 is available now. It's streaming over at Amazon Prime. You can also find her at hellier.tv, which is their website. Don't forget that Greg and Dana also run the Travelling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult. You can check them out at paramuseum.com and weedhq.com is still going as well. And again, I really enjoyed this second season. Yes, absolutely. So much in there. It goes off in so many different directions. There's so many different branches they end up going down, which don't really get resolved. Like a lot of things are just left as this weird moment. And then you wonder, well, are we coming back to that? Are we going to, what's, what happened with that? That's a great representation of exactly what happens in this paranormal field. And I think Hellier 2 is a real maturation from Hellier 1. I mean, these guys have come a long way. I mean, Greg and Dana, when we first met them almost 10 years ago, I mean, they were running around in a field with a guy who thought that he was shooting at Bigfoot. They've come he was a, shooting at Bigfoot. Well, well, he thought he was shooting at a Bigfoot. <laughs> he was also throwing hand grenades <laughs> at what he thought was Bigfoot. So to come all the way now to Hellier in Season 2, I think, and I, I want to talk about this more in the Plus Extension, because what's happening to Greg and Dana is that in the past, we've just thrown out there jokingly that they're the new John Keels. But I think they actually are. And I asked the question in the interview about, are you concerned about being engulfed by this phenomenon? Because so many other researchers have been as well. And Greg has that great answer where he says, well, look, there's enough of us still working together as a group that will stop each other from getting dragged in. And there may be something to that. Because in our plus extension coming up after this, I'm going to go into a number of researchers whose lives have not only been destroyed, but their lives in some cases have been taken by the very phenomena that is interacting right now with Greg and Dana and their group of friends that they're doing Hellier with. And it's a very, very scary and disturbing thing. And I know that Greg was saying, well, we don't want to approach fear. And I agree with that. They don't want to spread fear. <laughs> we do. I've got a lot of fear for you. <laughs> a lot of it coming up, including midgets that are resistant to bullets. And nipples. And nipple. Well, there's a lot of, yeah, abduction nipples. So that's what that's probably the worst thing that can happen out of all this is that you end up with a lot of nipples. Well, this sounds amazing. <laughs> All will be revealed in the Plus Extension coming up yeah. straight after this. And I really do want to talk a little bit more about Hellier because I started reading Anthony Peake's new book this week, mm-hmm. The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligences, which is really how Hellier started out. It was an investigation into goblins, non-human intelligences. Yes. But as soon as I started uh, reading this, there were so many parallels with what the Hellier team is going through. I mean... Peak starts writing about the initiatory experiences. I'm going to talk about that. Being dismembered, uh, a lot of links to these entities doing the dismembering, coming from cave systems, coming from the underground. He goes into the history of uh, different cultures throughout the world, having the same representations of these other world entities. When you say coming dis- from caverns, coming from caves, coming from the underworld. But when you say dismembering, do you mean like a, like a psychological ego death or people actually being torn apart by these things? Like the typical shamanistic experience yes, of being yeah. dismembered disemboweled, reassembled, and then born anew Mm -hmm. as a shaman. And later on, I I haven't finished it yet, but he's getting to points where he's talking about the jinn, of course, Mm -hmm. and the representations of the jinn were were kind of divided into colours. And he mentioned specifically the green jinn. As in the, the green man. As in the little green goblins. Now, the green jinn were said to inhabit caves, caverns, and it's fascinating. A lot it's a of weird it, synchronicity. It, it's funny how, you know, Greg and Dana, it was thrust upon them. You know, people would come up to them and say, oh, you guys are doing a magic ritual, right? Like this is some kind mm. of initiation. Well, you know, after reading Peak's book, it, it even, it reinforces even more how what they're going through at least has all the 
archetypes of yes. some kind of magical initiation and it includes the same, you know, beings and being underground, looking in caves. It, it gets really, really weird. But let's talk about it in our past extension coming up. And again, this is our last episode of 2019. I feel really relieved. (laughs) This has been the most exhaustive year of my life. But it's been a great year. I mean, for MU, it's been a really fantastic year and we've had a lot of fun, but the move in the middle of the year really took it out of us. Yeah, that did completely kill us. We need a bit of a break. Because that was normally our week off and we just didn't get it this year because we were just moving. Yeah. Uh, And we've both got small kids now, (laughs) so it's times times a thousand. Mm Mm-hmm. But we will be back for you on uh, January the 7th. For Plus members. Plus members, we're back on January the 7th. And for Barnacles, it's just whenever Whenever. we feel like it, really. Yeah. Maybe January the 10th. (laughs) But really... We'll try. If we feel like it, January the 10th, we'll be back for you guys. But in the meantime, sign up for Plus. There's all those uh, episodes still available in our back catalogue for you. If you sign up, you get access to the last two seasons. Uh, You also get discounts off our store if you're a Plus member. So if you want to grab even older shows, sign up for Plus, you get a 15% discount. And uh, you also get a high bitrate feed if you sign up for Plus as well. So you can listen to higher quality versions of the show. Nipples in 320 kilobits per second. And of course, yeah, you get access to the big extensions that we do on these shows every single week. You can go back and listen to all the extensions you've missed. You can go back and listen to all those Plus episodes that you've missed through the year. Sign up for Plus. Buy yourself a Christmas present. Nine bucks a month. Help support your favourite show. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Merry Christmas, Barnacles. We'll see you next year. If you're on Plus, stick around for great stuff after the break. It's